Ask yourself this morning, am I available to serve others? Do I have a servant's heart? And I fear that some of God's people go to heaven empty-handed for the simple reason they are not servants. But when someone becomes a servant, I mean, it's compelling to people. People say, you know, he's really a great guy. I mean, she's really an exceptional person. What is it that makes them tick? And so you have an opportunity to tell them about Christ. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in a series of special messages that were delivered by Dr. Brogy over the past couple of years. And today, Dr. Brogy will provide us with some insight on how we are to perceive the day in which we live and how we are to act as believers by living righteously, standing firm, and being faithful. Today's message is part two of his sermon entitled, Share What You Believe. Please join us in the book of Acts, chapter 28, as we continue. And so chapter 28 opens with that. Look at 28 in verse 1. When they had been brought safely through... Then we found out that the island was called Malta. Here's a slide that might help you. Uh, You can see the uh, boot of Italy. And down here on the right hand, left hand corner is Sicily. And right below Sicily is this little island called Malta. I was on a ship one time when we went by Malta. And it's not a huge island. It's rather small, so to speak. And they didn't know that it was Malta. It's 17 miles long. It is nine miles wild. It happened during the night. And so when they get there... They discover where they are. We're told in verse 2, the natives, literally the Barbaroi, some of your translations say the barbarians, as in the margin of the New American Standard out there in the notes, the natives, or the local inhabitants, the Net, Net Bible puts it, showed us extraordinary kindness. For because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled the fire and received us all. Now, when Luke calls them barbarians, that's not a put down. And that's why many newer translations, because of the nuance of the word barbarian in our day, render it a little differently like the natives or the inhabitants of the land. But understand, in the Greek's mind, if you didn't speak Greek, it didn't matter how well-educated you were, you are considered a barbarian. So here it is. It's still raining from the hurricane. Paul and his shipmates are soaked to the bone. It's the time of year when the water's still rather cold. And these Maltons come along, and they build this big bonfire for the 276 cold, shivering people to help them to warm up and maybe to dry off their clothes a little bit. Look at verse 3. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a echidna, a viper, it's a Greek word for a poisonous snake, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled as to what kind of 
poisonous snake this was. We don't know. It doesn't matter. But we know it's poisonous. Luke would have known that because he was a medical doctor and was trained in dealing with people who had been bitten by poisonous snakes. The natives would have known the snake because, of course, they lived on the island and they knew immediately this was a viper of sorts. And, of course, the Holy Spirit knew it was a poisonous snake because he inspires Luke to use that particular word to describe this poisonous viper. Well, they thought, Paul, he survived the storm and the shipwreck, but he's going to die at the fangs of this snake. Look at verse 4. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer. And though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. So these pagan natives conclude Paul's a murderer. It's happened. Justly, this is poetic justice of sorts. The god of the seas, Neptune, failed to take his life. And so Nesimus, the goddess of retribution, is pulling it off. In either case, verse 5, however, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. Now, by the way, this is similar to the counsel that Jesus gave in Mark chapter 16. It's not counsel to be presumed upon, and it was counsel that was given to the apostles and to the apostles only, that they would be able to take up serpents, so to speak, without harm. And this is a good case in point. But beyond that... This is a situation where God, of course, had promised that Paul was going to go to Rome. So there was no possible way that the bite could be fatal for him. If God could take him through a typhoon, he could certainly take him through a snake bite. So it's not so much that nothing would stop Paul. It was more that God had a promise. And in God's mind, nothing is going to stop his servant from getting to Rome because he has a plan for him. So with no ill effects... The natives assume he's not guilty, so he must be a god. And by the way, did you notice what the apostle Paul was doing when this viper bit him? The text says in verse 3 that he was picking up sticks. Now think about that for a moment. Think about all that Paul had done for the other 275 people on board. Remember, he was the person that God used ahead of time to warn them ever before they left port that the ship was going to go down. He was the one who instructed them that they would all make it safely, that when the shipwreck shipwreck went down, they would all be protected. He was the one who warned the sailors that they should not jump overboard, that they should do exactly as the angel of God told Paul. And through all of this, everything Paul said, all 276 on board were safely preserved. Now, after all Paul had done, he might have thought of himself, if he were arrogant, as a big shot. He might have requested a throne. He might have asked other people to serve him. He might have pleaded exhaustion from the whole process, both emotionally and physically. But Paul doesn't utter a word of complaint. He doesn't bellyache about the rain or the wind and the cold. What's he doing? He's picking up wood to help keep this fire going. 
Verse 7. Now in the neighborhood of that place were islands, were lands, excuse me, belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us courteously three days. And it happened that the father of Publius was lying in bed afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery. And Paul went to see him, and after he had prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. So Publius owns a big estate here on the island. He's obviously a wealthy man, and his home is right near the site of the shipwreck. And so for three days, with an open heart and a generous spirit, he showed hospitality to all 276 people. And Paul soon discovers that Publius's dad has the fevers. And in the original Greek, it underscores that it is severe and it is recurring. In fact, dysentery, it's the Greek word dysenteria. We get our word dysentery from it. And it's used to describe someone who is cramping with diarrhea. So Paul goes to his house. He prays over him. He lays hands on him. And his dad is instantly healed. Verse 9. After this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. Paul emptied out the sick rooms. He emptied out the hospitals, so to speak, there on the island. Folks were being healed. And no one was turned away. No case was too hard for the apostle. No one was told, well, you don't have enough faith. No one was said, well, you've been healed. You just need to wait for it to happen. No, Paul was truly manifesting the first century gift of healing. Why? Because he was an apostle. These folks today are fakes and frauds and phonies. Listen, God can still heal if he so chooses, but the gift of healing was a unique apostolic gift put out in the margin, 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Paul says it was a sign of a true apostle. And so only the apostles and those whom they had designated had this unique special ability. Now, while Luke does not mention it, I am convinced that Paul preached the gospel as he healed people. He didn't have to mention it, Luke, because all the way through Acts, whenever Paul did miracles and healed, he always gave Jesus the credit. I'm sure not for one split second he wanted these folks to think, well, look what I'm doing. No, he was representing Jesus, and he affirmed that Jesus did it through him. And I guarantee, as Paul was serving these people, that this became a springboard time and time again with all these sick, hurting people to share the good news of Jesus Christ. But what I want you to see is that Paul is available in showing Christ. He has a servant's heart. It reminds me of one rainy day in Northfield, Massachusetts, when a man accompanied by his two daughters arrived at the train depot, hoping to enroll his young daughters in the D.L. Moody School for Young Women. The three needed help with their luggage, and so he saw a rather common man, as he described him, sitting on the wagon, and he drafted him to help. He said, hey, come here. The man listened and helped him, and he said, I need to go to the D.L. Moody school. He said, well, I'm, I'm waiting for some other people to come. Listen, I need to go, and I need to go now. And, and the man listened, and, and he got there, much to his surprise. The cabbie, so to speak, was Dwight Lyman Moody. He was a servant. And most people that God uses in bringing people into the kingdom, they're servants. Why? Because servants are like Jesus, and God uses people like Jesus. 
Unfortunately, many Christians avoid humble, simple tasks like picking up sticks. But a true spiritual leader will be a servant. And when you are available to manifest servanthood, God brings opportunities your way that you never would have dreamt of. Some of you dads and moms have not run away from your God-given responsibility. And you're raising your children biblically. And people see what you have and their families are falling apart. And it gives you an opportunity to share Jesus Christ with them. Listen, many, many, a family who have visited this church, they came because they saw another family that was healthy. And they knew they didn't have what that family wanted, and they definitely wanted it. I have no doubt that in a congregation this size, that many of you unselfishly give yourself. And God uses that. He gives you those little chances in which to share the gospel because of it. And I hope you have a servant's mentality because on that occasion, if you remember when the disciples were debating over who's the greatest in the kingdom of God, it's pre-Pentecost, it's pre-regeneration. Jesus said, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them, but it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Ask yourself this morning, am I available to serve others? Do I have a servant's heart? And I fear that some of God's people go to heaven empty-handed for the simple reason they are not servants. But when someone becomes a servant, I mean, it's compelling to people. People say, you know, he's really a great guy. I mean, she's really an exceptional person. What is it that makes them tick? And so you have an opportunity to tell them about Christ. Three months later, they leave the island. Look at verse 10. They also honored us with many marks of respect. And when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all that we needed. Paul had won their hearts. He had been in homes across this island. He had been welcomed, him and all of his friends. And the text says, with many marks of respect, not to mention out of their own pocket. Remember, these folks had lost everything. They supplied them with their needs for the journey back to Rome. What a testimony, not only against the people on the island, of whom I'm sure many came to Christ, but even of the Roman soldiers that were accompanying them on the ship. Now, please know it wasn't always like this for the Apostle Paul. Many times Paul would be a real servant, and he didn't get a warm reception. He'd be driven out of town. But as a general principle, when you are a servant, you will have opportunity in which to share Christ. So that's the first thing. Paul was available in showing Christ. He showed people the kind of person Jesus was, one who came to serve. Secondly, I want you to notice not only was he available in showing Christ, Paul was adapted in serving Christ. He was adaptable in serving Christ. Look now, if you will, at verse 11. At the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship, which had wintered at the island and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. Now, that's a little interesting note that Luke drops in there. The twin brothers. 
they were the mythical twin sons of Zeus and Leda, named Castor and Paulus. And so some English translations, they interpret the twin brothers because we know definitively, historically, the names of these twin brothers. But the Greek text says the twin brothers and not Castor and Pollux. In either case, these pagan navigators, these pagan sailors, look to these uh, gods of sorts for safety, for protection on the seas. Kind of like people in the 60s and 70s. Some still do it. They put these little icons up on the dashboard. Oh, this is the patron saint of so-and-so who's going to protect us on our trip. Look now, if you will, at verse 12. After we put in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, no doubt waiting for a favorable wind. Let me bring up a map here. Uh, there we go. Um, if you see here, Syracuse, it's about 80 miles north of, of Malta there on a larger island, so to speak, called uh, Sicily. They leave, Sy- they leave Malta, they go to Syracuse, and then they come to this place, which is on the boot of Italy, called Regium. It's part of Italy itself. And listen to these verses and watch the map as I read through it. From there, we sailed around and arrived at Regium. That's another 70 miles up the coast on the toe of Italy. And a day later, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Puteoli. That's a good Italian name, Puteoli. And from there, as we'll see in a moment, they went to three ends. It becomes an important place in the narrative and ultimately to Rome. So Puteoli is another 180 miles north, and it serves as the port even to this day of Naples, Italy. And then in verse 14, there we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And then the end of verse 14 says, and thus we came to Rome. And the final lap would have been 125 miles on the Appian Way. Now, we're not told why they spent seven days there, but more than likely, Julius the Centurion had official Roman business that he had to attend to. But in the sovereignty of God, they're there for seven days. And there's a church there. And Paul, as an apostle, is going to teach and instruct and encourage the Christians who are there. And this centurion, who had a deep respect for Paul, gave him a certain amount of freedom. He and his Christian friends there in the town. Paul, the prisoner, was a man of integrity. He knew that Paul was determined to go to Rome and nothing was going to stop him and that Paul's word could be trusted. I won't be at all surprised if we meet Julius the centurion in heaven someday. So here's Paul in Puteoli. He's ministering to the saints and he's being ministered to the saints. Not only does he serve the believers, but they serve him. And it's the biblical principle, you reap what you sow. People who are servants never have a lack of people to help serve them. And so what a week of fellowship it must have been. You know, Paul, of course, when he eventually gets to Rome, he says, I want to go to Rome. And in the opening chapter, he says, one, because, uh, you know, I want to exercise my spiritual gift, that of a teacher. As an apostle, he wanted to build them up. He also said, I want to see some fruit there. I want to see some people saved while I'm there. And then in addition, he said, I want to be encouraged by your faith, and I want you to be encouraged by my faith. Paul, the great apostle, 
in the church at Rome, much like in this text, he is encouraged by other believers. He's not so super spiritual that he doesn't need the saints. He desperately needs them. We all need each other. And I'm sure he told the story of the shipwreck. They were probably all on the edge of their seat. Tell us again, Paul, what happened? What did God do? And they were just blown away. Verse 15, and the brethren when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Appius and three inns, we just saw that on the map, to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Now, Rome at last was a dream come true. Paul had been waiting for years to come to Rome, and what a strategic city, because the saying is true, all roads lead to Rome. So if you reach Rome, you reach potentially a large part of the Roman Empire because people would travel to that. Now, maybe when he envisioned years earlier about going to Rome, he thought he would blitz the synagogues there as he did in town to town on his missionary journeys. Maybe he thought he'd do some open-air evangelism like he did up on top of Mars Hill. But that's not what happens. He arrives here as a prisoner. Proverbs 16 says, A man plans his ways... But God directs his steps. And so when the news is out, believers come 43 miles from the market of Appius, and they come 50 miles from a little town called Three Inns. And the Christians in Rome, for two years, are able to benefit through the ministry of this great apostle. And what happened when they came? Notice, and when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. God encouraged Paul through the people. He thanked God and took courage. And that's why we're not to forsake our assembling together as is a habit of some. But we are to encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day, the return of Christ, which we are seeing the visuals for drawing near. There's an assumption in the New Testament that you take the initiative to build Christian friendships. The writer of the Hebrews will say, encourage one another day after day as long as it is called today, lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, there's an assumption that you're not just finding fellowship on Sunday morning, but throughout the week, as long as it's called today, you are involved in the lives of other believers. And so Paul is encouraged, and he is encouraging. Notice the restrictions, though, that he experienced. Verse 16. When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. So when he finally gets into the city of a million people in the first century, a wide-open mission field, he is confined to quarters. Julius is long gone. And according to verse 30, for two years, and according to verse 20, he's chained to a guard. Now, we need to remember that circumstances don't always go as we plan for them to go. But it was no mistake that Paul, under the providence of God, was experiencing the circumstances he knew because God had a plan in them, and Paul understood that. He is being restricted under house arrest. In fact, there are four limitations that are brought out in the text, and none of them stop him. He uses them all to his advantage. First, since he cannot go to the people, the people come to him. Look at verse 17. After three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews, and when they came together, he began saying to them, brethren, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. 
And when they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar. Not that I had any accusation against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you. For I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. And you can almost hear the chain rattling as he writes. A chain that Paul says he's wearing, notice, for the sake of the hope of Israel. Paul is saying, listen, I am being incarcerated on behalf of the Messiah, the one whom we have longed for for millennia. For centuries, we've been looking and longing and waiting, and he has finally come. And so Paul followed his consistent practice. He would go to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And so he calls these Jews, and normally you'd find those Jews in the synagogue, but under God's providence, he invites them, and they come. They come willingly. Paul's not discouraged. He is not moping and groaning. Look, I'm under house arrest. I'm chained to a guard. No, he's just thinking God must have a different plan. He is adaptable. Second, another limitation, he can't unchain himself. In fact, he uses this as an object lesson in some of the letters that he writes. Remember, he's chained to these guards, and he writes during this time the book of Ephesians, the book of Philippians, the book of Colossians, and his letter to Philemon. For instance, in Ephesians 6, he, from this experience, uses this imagery. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God. He got that imagery right here. And he makes spiritual parallels. He describes the soldier's belt, which is the belt of truth. He describes the breastplate as the breastplate of righteousness. He describes the Romans' battle sandals as feet prepared for sharing the gospel. He describes the shield as the shield of faith. And he describes the helmet as the hope, the guarantee of our salvation. So instead of grumbling and breaking fellowship with God, he uses these circumstances for the glory of God. And during these two years, He writes the prison epistles, as we call them, along with the letter to Philemon. God does not waste this time. God never wastes any of the so-called negative circumstances we are in. Third, I learned that Paul used his circumstances as an opportunity to reach the praetorian guard. In the book of Philippians, uh, an epistle... It's not the major theme, but it's one of the underlying theme. We sometimes call it the epistle of joy. Uh, He describes some of the things that took place during these two years. Listen to these words from Philippians 1. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well-known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. These soldiers, they are the official bodyguard for imperial prisoners. They represented the emperor himself. And think about it. What does Paul do? He uses this opportunity of being chained every four hours, history tells us, to a new guard to galvanize the church to whom he is writing to be faithful to share their faith. And so he'll go on in Philippians and say, most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. In other words, if if Paul can preach the gospel while under house arrest and chained to a guard, what's my excuse? 
What have you done with your limitations? Have you ever asked God to take some of the seemingly negative circumstances and turn them for the progress of the gospel? To listen again to today's message, Share What You Believe, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. Remember that you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program Share What You Believe 020. Search the Scriptures is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you would like to help sustain this ministry, click the Give button on our app or at searchthescriptures.org. Or you can call at 877-787-7478. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.